is it going to go? Denied. It goes into Starks. Starks with two. Starks with one. Starks for the win. He got it! He got it! It counts! It counts from three! What an incredible shot by TJ Starks! Welcome to the latest installment of Aggie Hoops Weekly. I'm Blake, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend David. We've got a lot to cover this week, including AM's first three conference basketball games, and we've also got a conversation about the upcoming game against the Auburn Tigers with Elizabeth Younger-Purpich. She is a former Auburn basketball player who also has Aggie ties, so we have a really fun conversation with her. So we've got a lot to go through. And with that being said, I'm going to turn it over to you, David. How are you feeling about things now? So I feel good, Blake. Honestly, we've had a good week of basketball. We played well at Rep Arena against Kentucky, even though we lost. I thought it was a good showing. We obviously played well enough to steal a game in Tuscaloosa. And we're entering a stretch where we have five of our next six at home. So I know people tend to always talk about the larger scale issues when they think about the current state of Texas A&M basketball, roster construction, uh, talent retention, pipeline recruiting issues, the guy at the top. There's all these things people talk about. I'm choosing to put all that on hold, at least for now, because we just had a good week of basketball. We have a potentially interesting home late in three weeks ahead of us. I think optimism is is the word of the day for me. And I think for the first time in a while, we've got something to sell. And it's not Billy Kennedy's real estate holdings in College Station either. Jesus. Okay. So, well, there it is. Sorry. (laughs) I have some bad news. I have some bad news, everybody. The podcast is canceled. (laughs) The podcast has been canceled forever. No, there's, uh, no, there's, there's some good stuff. There's some good stuff. You're a very good joke. Notwithstanding, there are some good things to talk about right now. And I'm just choosing to live here until the world tells me I can't anymore because I don't know when the next time we're going to get to have a podcast with this theme. So, so yeah, that's where I'm at right now. Yeah, it was a big week for AM. I think that you, you put up a, uh, an unexpectedly good showing in Rupp Arena against Kentucky, and then to pull out that win over Alabama after you hadn't played particularly well in, in that game, picking up a big win on a buzzer beater, hey, you take that anytime you can get it. Yeah, so agreed across the board, and I think this is a good time. Let's jump in and talk about the three SEC games we've played to date. I won't linger too much on any of the three, uh, but I'll give them... A little TLC. You know, they are conference games, right? We're not talking about the Valparaisos of the world. These are their conference games. We'll, we'll dig in a little bit. And then we'll link up, Blake. We'll talk about some of the larger things we've learned through three games uh, in the conference slate. But we'll start with Arkansas. And you and I discussed this at length. This is a game we needed. Looking at our January, the fact that we either had games on the road or games at home against really tough opposition for effectively the entire month of January... And the fact that Arkansas is pretty gettable this year, especially on the road. This was a demoralizing game for me because we didn't really play that bad. Arkansas didn't really play that great. And we still didn't pull it off. Uh, I wrote about this. I said, I almost would have preferred if Arkansas would have crushed us and there was a specific thing I could point to to feel better, like a straw man I could knock down. That would have been a better place for me mentally. But instead, what happened is... We played okay. Arkansas didn't play that well. We still weren't good enough to beat a, a honestly average SEC team at home. And the problem here, Blake, is that we didn't really do anything specifically that I could point to that we could fix. We kind of just were who we were, and it wasn't good enough. And that's a scary thing to realize as you enter the meat of conference play. But then the game against Kentucky, that made me feel a lot better. We jumped out, and people didn't believe this. It was actually making the national run when it first happened. 
we came out of the gates great at Kentucky. We came out to a 10-0 lead. I think those watching the game would agree that it could have been 14 or even 16-0 before Kentucky really woke up. Uh, but then Kentucky slammed the door heading into halftime as you expect they would. They rolled us by, I think, about 25 over the last 15 minutes of the first half. They had a comfortable dozen-point lead or so heading into halftime. This is where my optimism truly stemmed from, though. Like, How many times have you seen a team come out in the second half at Rep Arena and that deficit gets pushed from 12 to 25, right? Where Kentucky, they're just famous for they step on throats coming out of halftime. And we dug our heels in and we made it exceedingly clear it was going to be a game. I won't tell you that we were playing beautiful basketball, but we were playing hard and we were doing just enough to keep things interesting. The game was a three-point game with five minutes remaining. Uh, Kentucky did pull away late, but even so, uh, I don't think the locals really rested until there were about two minutes remaining, and that was like finally when they hit a couple free throws and it became clear they were going to win. That game had me feeling optimistic. I felt good, and I think that perhaps might have fed into the preview I wrote for Alabama was pretty optimistic. I said there was nothing really about Alabama that scared me in terms of their offensive weapons. And of course, we came out against Alabama and we played terrible in the first half, and I was not rewarded for that optimism. We came out shooting awfully, and Bama built a a 10-point halftime lead. I felt, many people felt, that that was about the end of it. You could be forgiven for thinking we're not going to come back from that. But there's one thing we had working in our favor against Bama. We weren't sloppy. We couldn't shoot, but we weren't sloppy. We only had three turnovers on the day, even though it was our worst shooting effort of the season, which we'll talk about later. The fact that we were taking care of the basketball and that we had a ton of success when we worked the ball inside to Josh Nebo kept the game close. And then the audio you heard at the top, Stark stole it for us late. So that's what has us sitting at one and two after the opening three games of the SEC slate. What's your take so far, Blake? This was definitely an interesting week. It was a much better start to SEC play than we saw last year. I think there's some positives to be to be gained from all of this. You, you saw a team finally dig its heels in and refuse to go away in, in a couple of games, which is something we haven't seen. We've seen the team fade down the stretch. They, they didn't do that against Alabama, which was really surprising. And they, you know, they were still fighting against Kentucky. They were outgunned against Kentucky. Big surprise there. But overall, I'm pleased with the effort. I'm pleased with the general direction of things. You hate to lose that game against Arkansas, especially at home in Reed Arena, on a night where you played much better than Arkansas. Arkansas didn't do anything better. Across the entire stat sheet, the only thing... Arkansas had an advantage in was three-point percentage. Uh, you know, they shot the ball from behind the arc and hit one out of three, and we were hitting one out of five. So at that point, you can easily attribute the two points in that loss to a few missed three-pointers, and, and you move on from there. So it's really surprising to see a game where you played so well and you still didn't come away with the win against a team that didn't play well at all. Arkansas really did not have a great game. It, it's just one you kind of chalk up to bad luck. But as you step forward through the schedule, you have Auburn at home, and then you're rewarded with a, a home game against Missouri as well. So that that should definitely uh, help give you a little bit of optimism. You know, the Auburn game is going to be quite the challenge, but Missouri looks like a very winnable game at Reed. It does. It really does. So I want to take a minute here, Blake. Um, I want to talk about the three games kind of as an aggregate instead of the individual impact. Um, I know we both have some points we want to try to make about where we can go from here. 
uh, we're both kind of relieved that it's not just the drudgery of an 0-3 start. We actually have you know something interesting to sell. But what I want to talk about, I'm going to start with the first bullet here, which is that Savion Flag has really been pretty good for us in the last few weeks. Um, he had a rather he had a rough December. I'm just going to be honest. He had a rough December. He kind of wilted at times, but he's had four pretty efficient offensive performances. Uh, he played well against Texas Southern, and then he's pretty much been on the money in every game in the SEC play. But what I find interesting about this guy, he's second in the SEC in the percentage of his minutes played. Did you know that? Did you know he was logging that kind of time? I didn't realize that. That's actually really surprising. So he's second in the SEC in percentage of minutes played, and he commits the eighth fewest fouls in the SEC. So he's giving us really exactly what we need. He's giving us 30 to 35 plus minutes of good defense without a ton of fouls. He's contributing more on the glass than I thought he would. He's scoring a double digits pretty much regularly. Maybe this is what we're going to get from him for the rest of the year. What do you think about his resurgence in the last couple of weeks? This is certainly a very encouraging sign. As you mentioned, he had a really rough December. And and in all honesty, it, it kind of felt like what you saw from him last year. When when DJ Hogue had his issues, Savion Flagg stepped in and looked like he was going to take away uh, DJ's spot in the starting rotation, and then he just disappeared. In the back of my mind, I wondered, are we seeing the same thing here? Are we seeing a guy who who just can't bring it every game, who can't be consistent and, and put together 30, 35 minutes on the floor in, in, a, in a solid performance? But I think you're starting to see Savion get more comfortable with his with his leadership role on the team. It's, it is comforting that his offensive game is, is what's evolving and what's continuing to blossom because that was the thing that's the place where you really need him. He was never really that much of a defensive liability. It was just he, he could be he could just disappear on you on the offensive end of the floor. And so I think you're starting to see he's becoming a reliable shot maker. He's not relying on the three-point shot as much. He's content to you know go hit the 18 foot or the 15 foot jumper. And, and that's what you need from him. You need him to you know, work the ball in from the perimeter, get to about 15 feet and rise and fire and, and knock down a jumper and then go back down and play defense. That's You need a re- reliable shot maker, some, somebody who's going to chip in 15 to 20 points a game. And, and he's, he's done that really nicely to start conference play. That's basically where he's at. He's in the neighborhood of 16 and 8 over his last four games, playing well over 30 minutes in every game. Virtually no foul trouble, very efficient shooting. Now, he's quietly been a huge part of why we're both feeling so much better about the team than we were the last time we spoke. So let's move on. I want to talk about TJ Starks and the fact that, I don't know, I've, I've found a new way to view his contributions. Obviously, he had a huge moment for us against Alabama. Even in that context of that huge moment, his stat line wasn't great. He's had some ugly stat lines, honestly, quite often. Um, I know we were bagging on him pretty heavy to start the year. But now, taking a look at some of the advanced metrics, it's become a bit more clear to me just how much we rely on this guy. His usage rate is the highest in the SEC, Blake, by a huge margin, by like a really large margin. And I don't think it's because he's being selfish. I really don't. I think it's because in non-fast break possessions, he's the guy. He's got to create. If it doesn't come from him, nothing happens. And so over time, what I have come to realize is that we ask a ton out of this guy creatively. He has to, he has to create basically every possession. I recently have learned that his assist rate 
is eighth in the SEC. Assist rate is an advanced metric that takes assists as a function of attempted field goals. His turnovers have come down. I don't know. I'm, I know I'm, I'm rambling here a bit, but I think I've come around on the type of player he has become for us this year. And I've become more in tune with the fact that he doesn't have a ton of help in the backcourt. Yeah. Um, how, yeah. How do you feel about the way he's developed in the last few weeks? I think the emergence of Wendell Mitchell has helped quite a bit. Chuck has, has definitely stepped in and taken some of that load off of, of TJ's shoulders. But I think it has also freed TJ up to do a, a little bit more creatively um, to, to create some opportunities for others to add to that assist rate. I think that that's what you're seeing is the positive impact that Mitchell has had. But you're right. Starks is a ball-dominant point guard. It's it's going to flow through him. He has to run the show. And and part of that is because there aren't a whole because lot of Because who else other, would run the show? Right, yeah. There aren't a it's, lot of yeah. other options out there. Can you reliably say that J.J. Chandler is is going to be you know the man at point guard? No. You know, your only other option is Mitchell and and even then I think that there's a there's a complementary role between Starks and Mitchell there. So I've been pleasantly surprised by by TJ's ability this year. His his turnovers have come down. Kentucky surprisingly was quite a was quite a rough game for the entire team turnover wise, but that was the worst game that we we've had in terms of turnovers and with Kentucky's athleticism, I'm not surprised. It's it's pretty common to see A&M with no more than about 10 to 12 turnovers a game where it was in in prior years it felt like we were averaging 18 to 20 turnovers a game. So, I I feel like they've actually gotten better and more efficient in taking care of the ball, but I I think TJ has has also come a long way in helping bring that ratio down as well he's driving to pass more often is what i've noticed he has an extraordinarily quick first step he can beat his guy i think early in the season blake he was beating that guy with his head down and the intent of getting to the basket hell or high water now he's beating that first man with his head up and he has uh, he's evolved in that way and i think he's improved that part of his game but that part of the game is only there because chuck mitchell is now reliably sticking threes and now there's at least somebody that the defense can't sag off of. Um, yeah, I think A feeds B and B feeds A a little bit, but it was nice to have Mitchell again. Yet again, he was the only reliable guy we had. He was two for six from beyond the arc against uh, in the most recent game against Alabama with the rest of the team shooting one for 13 from beyond the arc. Blake, that put us at three for 19 from three-point land for the game, our worst shooting effort of the season. You know how bad you have to shoot to be the worst A&M shooting effort of the season? Do you have any idea? Man, that's that's rough. That is yeah, really it's like, bad. You know, like the joke, the thinnest kid in fat camp. That's like the fattest <laughs> kid in fat camp. That's like it is not easy to do to be the to be our worst outside shooting effort of the year. But we did it. Uh, and the the reason that we managed to pull the game off despite our complete inability to shoot was two things. One, we took care of the basketball. But two, Nebo was fantastic. He got whatever he wanted down low uh, for basically the entire game. Uh, he had 21 points against Alabama on 10 to 12 shooting. He had seven rebounds. He had four blocks. All of this in 28 minutes. He had extended run because Mekawulu was in foul trouble and really, uh, I think he only played 12 minutes and really wasn't much of a factor. Uh, we got to start talking about, I mean, Blake, is Nebo going to make the All-SEC defensive team? We got to start talking about what this guy's ceiling is, right? Oh, I I would have a hard time saying that he wouldn't make the SEC defensive team. No, the offensive outburst was what was pleasantly surprising 
let me let me backtrack off of that. I think that his offensive game is very underrated. You know, we talk about him being a guy who's throw down alley oop dunks and and block shots. I think he has a, a solid post game. I think he can he can find his way to the rim and and make some nice moves. He was unstoppable. He was unstoppable against Alabama. He was phenomenal, and and Alabama has a. a I won't call him a great post player, but Dante Hall is a is a very serviceable yeah. big man in the SEC. Um, he's a solid SEC big. He is. He is. He he's a solid SEC big, and and Nebo Nebo did whatever he wanted against Dante. So I was I was quite impressed with with that offensive outburst, and I'm starting to wonder if if he can string together a few more games like that, does that make a case for him starting over Mekawulu? I understand that Mekawulu is the more consistent presence, but this is, I think this is the second or third game you've seen Mekawulu in foul trouble, which was not what we expected. I think we both were concerned more with, with Nebo being the player in foul trouble with the block shots and, and all of that, but he's actually done a really nice job keeping himself out of foul trouble and his offensive game is also rounding into form, so I'm I'm curious to see if he if he doesn't surpass Mekawulu for some of the starting minutes. So I've got a question for you: Was it the best individual game by an Aggie this season? Oh, that's a good question. I, I would hesitate to call it the best, the most complete. Yes, because of his because of what he brings on the defensive end. He's such a game changer on the defensive end. I don't know that it was the absolute best game because I think Flag had had a nice game or two early on. Starks has had some nice games, but I would say it is definitely the most complete game from an offensive and defensive perspective. Absolutely, and with what he brings on on the glass as well. And I, I hate to keep harping on foul trouble or lack thereof. Nebo does he does these things while staying out of foul trouble. He gives you. High energy, effective defensive minutes while staying on the court. I mean, Blake in against in this game against Alabama, where Mecca Willie was in immediate foul trouble. If Nebo comes onto the court and gets in foul trouble himself, we're sunk, right? Right. It's the, the the evening is lost, the afternoon is lost. So it's not just that he's doing these things; he's doing them in a smart way. Um, I'm very very pleased with with what he's done, and I don't mean to highlight Alabama to the extent that uh, I don't want to make it sound like I I'm not pleased with Mecca Willie as well. The bigs are holding their own. I can't believe that big man depth hasn't been a problem for us yet. But effectively running these guys off of each other and having them combined for 40 minutes a night, we're just not having any problems on the glass, protecting the rim, playing. You know what I mean? Like the bigs are just not the problem. It's been very comforting. It really has. And and I think this was something when JC left the program, you and I both were concerned with how are we going to run this thing with only two serviceable big men. There's... 40 minutes a night of a big man play that you're spreading across two guys and you've completely eliminated your ability to put both of them on the floor at the same time other than crunch time situation coming down the stretch where you've got you know the last two minutes of a game and nobody's in foul trouble so we can put them both out there to try to protect the rim I mean that's that's the only situation where you can have those two guys on the floor together and We've somehow navigated that, so I, I think it's a credit to both of those players. And, and in all honesty, there's probably some credit for B- Billy Kennedy there as well. He's done a nice job of, of managing those guys, keeping them keeping them out of trouble. And you know, even when even when one does get into the into foul trouble, the other one understands he has a responsibility that he can't take bad fouls, and 
they they play off each other really well in that regard. They do, which is why I hesitate to move to our next topic, which is not based on the big man. It's based on Brandon Mahan and the fact that he can't hit the broadside of a barn right now, Blake. I'm looking at his game log. Basically, ever since we stopped our five-game winning streak, he's three for 16 from beyond the arc. His minutes played has dwindled from 28 to 24 to 16 to 13. He doesn't really give you much else. I've got to ask you, if he doesn't start hitting three soon, are we going to become a seven-man rotation? What do you see with this guy moving forward? Oh, that's a good question. He's streaky, right? And the reality of the situation is is he's going to keep getting some minutes and the shots will start to fall eventually. And when he when the shots start to fall, you're going to ride the hot hand and you're going to keep him out there as much as you can and tell him don't stop shooting until they stop going in. And when they stop going in, then he kind of pulls back and he'll drift back to the bench a little bit more often. Mm-hmm. And you just wait for him to catch fire again. So this is this is life with a streaky shooter. Um you know, there's there's one or two ways you hand one of the two ways you handle this. The first is that you do what I just said. You you run him out there when he's hot. You pull him back when he's not. Or some people sometimes some coaches say you know you you got to shoot through it. The only way to to get hot again is to keep shooting. I don't think Anum has the luxury. Of, we, we don't. Yeah, uh, I don't think Anum do. doesn't have the luxury of of letting him shoot until he's hot again. So he's gonna. We're gonna have to go with option number one. He's gonna have to come back to the bench and, and fall out of the rotation until the shots start to fall. So you're gonna see him come into the game, take a couple of early attempts. If they're not there, then he's looking at ten to twelve minutes a night. If one of those or both of those attempts fall. Brandon Mahan's going to get more minutes, and and he can do some really impressive things when he's on. But when he's not, you're just waiting until he catches fire again because it's it's going to be a long night with him playing any any extended period at, when he's cold. Yeah, just the defense, the rebounding, the the assist, uh, the none of it's really there, Blake. So if if he's not hitting, it's kind of a black hole for you on both ends of the floor. And I think, yeah, I think the coaching staff has recognized that. To your point, he hasn't started either of the last two games. I would be very surprised if that changed up and until he ch- literally changes our mind with a good shooting performance mid-game. So I think we're, uh, I think we're looking at Brandon Mahan, bench contributor for for at least a, you know, for the foreseeable future. All right, let's talk. Let's talk the next three weeks because part of what has me excited is that we've played well heading into a three-week stretch where we have five of our next six at home. Uh, to say it like that implies that we should expect to win five of those six, which is not true, and that will be exceedingly clear here uh, in just a moment. But, Blake, walk me through. What do you see in the next three weeks? Where do you think we can maybe pick some people off? Well, we start on Wednesday night against Auburn, the number 11 team in the country. That is not one where we can pick some people off. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yes. don't, I do not see this as an opportunity for A&M to, to pick up a victory. That's a really talented team that Bruce Pearl has assembled over there. No surprise. That guy knows how to how to build a program. And he's built Auburn into, into a winner. So they are quite formidable right now. And I, I, I don't think that that's any place where you're going to make hay. Um, after that, you look at Saturday, hosting Missouri at Reed Arena. That's a good opportunity. That's one you, you should easily pick up that win. Uh, I would actually be quite concerned if you don't pick up a win in that game. Then after that, in the following week, you go to Florida and then host Kansas State. I think you should pick up one of those. Kansas State being the one you should pick up. I think going yeah. into going into Gainesville, eh, that's that's going to be a tall task for AM to pick that game up. 
Uh, but then after that, you go back and have two more games, two more home games the following week against LSU and Tennessee. Uh, LSU is obviously the more winnable of, of those two. Tennessee, Rick Barnes is is doing his thing and has that program on quite the roll these days. Um, that's I don't think you stand any ch- any chance against Tennessee. I do think there is a, a a decent chance that you could pull out a win over LSU at home. So uh, this I think that that's a that's a critical one. So I think over the next three weeks, there's easily a possibility that in those six games you could go three and three. And then, mm-hmm. you know, that would, in my mind, that would be a pretty, pretty good result looking at, at where things are right now. I agree with you. I think I put Tennessee and at Florida into the same category. Um, I know we have Tennessee at home, but Tennessee has been cracking skulls on the road. They, that team fears nobody. Uh, I think, I don't think that's the day for us <laughs> to, no. to target. Um, I think at Florida, even though they've stumbled recently, I don't think at Florida is going to be a particularly fun time for us. I am feeling good about the home game against Missouri. I think we'll get at least one of Kansas State and LSU. I think we need one of those two. Um, And I don't feel great about Auburn, but the thing that sticks in my craw is the fact that so much of their personality and success derives from that environment they've created at home. I don't know. I don't think we're going to win that game, but I think that of the games that don't look promising, I think that will be the closest of them is the game against Auburn. Just to be candid, for us to really use this three-week break as – or uh, this three-week passage of play is something that can launch our season into something better. We do need to be at least three and three, and I think that I think that's going to require getting one of Auburn or Tennessee at home. And Tennessee is just too good, per just to be to be blunt. Tennessee, it's just not going to happen against Tennessee. So I don't know. I'm hoping uh, I'm hoping we can get it done against Auburn, but I tend to agree with you that three and three to two and four is probably where this next stretch shakes out. Yeah, I, I think so. I think two and four is the realistic view, and I think. Three and three is kind of that optimistic, you know, if glass half full approach. So, yeah, you know, anything less than two and four, though, and and I would consider that a severe disappointment. All right, so I've got two questions. I want to change change pace here real quick. Uh, there were two topics that came up in the Kentucky game by the announcers, and and I wanted to run each of these topics by you, and I want to to propose an argument to you and see if you are buying or selling that argument. So the first was early in the Kentucky game, the assertion was made that A&M is a good defensive team and has been a good defensive team under Billy Kennedy. Is this true? Is this false? Are you buying or selling the argument that A&M is a good defensive team? Clarifying question. Is that a Billy Kennedy era question or just this season? Uh, it was overall in the Billy Kennedy era was the way that it was stated. I think overall in the Billy Kennedy era, era we have been, eh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like above, slightly above average. Like defense is not, you, you can't slice through us. We've, even in our lean years, we've been able to claw our way to the 6 and 12, 7 and 11 type season because we generally play well on defense. I don't think we're, uh, perhaps with the exception of the Robert Williams era, I don't think we've been a lockdown defensive team, but I don't think defense is the problem. Let me put it that way. I've, n- I've never thought that defense was the thing of holding us back. Sure. Where do you okay. land? Do you, I, I take it you don't like that comment or else you wouldn't have brought it up. I, I No, I, I I don't like that comment. I, I That is an argument I would sell in a heartbeat. I, I don't see this team as a defensive juggernaut. I don't see the Billy Kennedy era 
as one of defensive stalwarts. Like you said, it's slightly above average at best. And if you look at this year's team, some people will say, well, this year's team is the anomaly. I would say this year's team is actually kind of par for the course. So if you look at at A&M's adjusted defensive efficiency, they rank number 110 in the country out of 360 D1 schools. But they are number 14 out of 14 schools in the SEC. So in my mind, that's one of those numbers that is very deceptive to say, well, they're number 110, yeah, but that puts uh, a lot of other programs ahead of you. So I've never seen... Billy Kennedy as a great defensive coach. I always, of course, Gillespie was a phenomenal defensive coach, but I feel like Turchin was actually a, a reasonably decent defensive coach as well. I think we've definitely taken a step back in terms of our defensive performance in in, in the tenure of, of Billy Kennedy. So yeah, I understand what you're saying. Um, I think both statements, the statements that we're making kind of play off of each other. This isn't that great of a defensive team by Billy Kennedy standards. But it is not that bad of a defensive team overall, so therefore he must be a decent defensive coach. I don't know if my logic is fully sound there, but it sounds right, so I'm just going to go with it. <laughs> it's it it doesn't it doesn't really concern me. Um, I know uh, we looked this up earlier. Our adjusted efficiency is worst in the SEC, so a, a defensive metric that accounts for tempo doesn't doesn't speak very highly of us, but. The eye test and some of the supplementary defense statistics that feed into that efficiency metric are pretty good. Uh, I know I don't. the field goal percentage against us isn't really that great. The free throw percentage against us isn't that great. So we have some good shit talkers at the line who <laughs> mutter under their breath at the guy. or so, We got something going on there. Um, I don't know. I just Every time I think about what could make us better, my brain immediately goes to the offensive end. So I... I, I don't think defense is really the problem. I think it's a harmless comment. I'm okay with it. Okay. And I, I do agree that it is far from the top of the list with uh, with what ails A&M basketball. I, I just don't like the assertion that A&M is a great defensive team because we have seen great defensive teams for Aggie basketball, and, and this is not one of them. Yeah, they said great. I don't like that. Right. Now, the other, the other statement that was made – in the pregame talk, Billy Kennedy met with the with the announcers and was articulating his point that AM basketball is at a disadvantage when it comes to the recruiting pipeline because unlike Kentucky, we don't know which players are going to leave the program to go to the NBA until it actually happens. So in the case of a Robert Williams staying for another year, that was a scholarship that we then couldn't offer to someone else. Same thing with Tyler Davis and DJ Hogue. And then when those guys leave before their senior year, we then don't have the recruits lined up to fill those scholarship spots. So... Are you buying or selling this as a valid excuse for why A&M does not have the recruiting lined up and guys ready to step in when you have caliber players like Robert Williams and Tyler Davis leaving the program to go to the NBA? Two-pronged response. I don't think comparing to Kentucky is relevant for all but of about five programs. So I don't know why they chose to to pull the thread on that particular broadcast. Secondly, I I don't like the revisionist history here. I think it was pretty clear that Davis was gone. It was exceedingly clear that Hogue and Caldwell were gone. 
Obviously, Troca was graduating and Williams was a projected lottery talent. Any lack of foresight that may have led to the coaching staff not pushing really hard for incoming 2018 freshmen, kind of unforgivable in my, in my mind. I think there's really no excuse for the fact that we were, were 100% transfer reliant this year. I think we messed up. And I think anything else is um, creative accounting of how of the way things actually went down. I don't know. Where do you land? I agree wholeheartedly. I was ready to throw something at my TV at the mere mention of, of Billy Kennedy's <laughs> response to that to that statement. So it just it reeks of a lack of accountability, um, and and it's certainly a, a revisionist history approach. But this was something you knew that Robert Williams was on his way out the door. You you had a pretty good idea that Tyler Davis was going to be on his way out the door. He was the number one recruit in high school coming out his his senior year. So you knew at some point this guy was going to leave the program early. He wasn't going to stay around for four years. Okay, DJ Hogue may have been a little bit of a surprise, but you still had Trosha and you still had Dwayne Wilson leaving the program, and you knew those guys were not going to be there. So how you could not have at least four spots lined up that ready for this this season... I I agree. It's it's unforgivable, and I was really taken aback that Kennedy would try to sell that argument because it 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 just it reeked of a lack of accountability on his part. Yeah, I don't like that. That's going to annoy me if that comes up again. I don't think that's the way anything went down. I think it's just a way to sell what was clearly a mistake. So, uh, despite the transfer happy nature of college basketball now, you can still really you can't build the team more effectively than by lining up guys that are willing to be two or three or four year players. Um, that's still the backbone and the transfers are the cherry on top, right? That's you, you use that to fill holes. You don't make a cherry Sunday entirely of cherries, Blake. You, you make <laughs> that's then that's what, that's what we've been trying to do lately. We've been trying, I feel like we landed a couple of transfers and then we decided, well, let's just transfer everybody all the time always. And that's just a disaster approach. It's way too unstable. Um, at some point, as the season winds down, we'll start talking about the guys coming in in 2019, which they do look good. We, we are going to fix this problem at at least some level next year. But yeah, any, any revisionist history that makes it sound like we did this on purpose or that there was some factor outside of our control is kind of, kind of nonsense, to be honest. Yeah, I agree. So with that being said, let's jump in and talk to Beth younger Perpich. She is a former Auburn Tiger basketball player who uh, has married an Aggie and and follows both programs closely. So she's going to give us some insights on what we can expect from the Auburn Tigers this week. All right, I am really excited to make this next introduction. This is a good personal friend of mine and an Aggie by marriage, but most importantly, a former member of the Auburn Women Tigers basketball program, member of the 1997 SEC Women's Basketball Tournament. We have Beth Younger Purpose joining us today. How are you doing this evening, Beth? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. How are y'all doing? We're doing awesome, and again, thank you for your time. You are uniquely positioned to talk about both A&M and Auburn basketball. I feel like you're one of a handful of people who, with a foot in each program, so we're, we're really pumped that you're able to join us uh, this evening. Before we get going on anything on the court, I'm interested in your take on what Pearl has done off the court. I think Blake and I were both 
pretty uh, we, we were a little annoyed whenever we couldn't land Pearl. He was one of the hot uh, candidates when his when his NCAA ruling expired and he was available to be hired again. We, like many programs, wanted him. We didn't jump in. Auburn did. And the culture change he's uh, that he's managed to pull off there is nothing short of incredible. Can you walk us through kind of just the transition and the mindset, how things have changed at Auburn basketball over the past three, four years? Yeah, it's it was wonderful to get Bruce Pearl from Tennessee. And the entire program, I mean, the student body has shifted. And you, you see all the games are sold out now. Uh, you see this, the students uh, in the student section, they all stand and they jump and they cheer and everybody dresses up. I mean, it's, it's like a football following for the Auburn basketball. And Bruce Pearl just has so much passion that I think that really resonates with all the students and then, you know, all the fans and alumni like me. Um, you know, we're all really excited to have him there. But, yeah, there's definitely a culture shift. And I can tell we're looking at your results. I mean, you guys have just steamrolled people at home this year. Uh, we'll jump into the to the results uh, a bit later in the interview. But yeah, I mean, it just looks like that translates really well into on court success. It looks like you guys have been uh, have been nothing short of amazing at home this year. Auburn is has obviously got a lot of talent on the floor. You guys were ranked as high as eighth in the country after a couple losses. Now you're down to eleven, but still, that's a very respectable ranking. So, can you talk a little bit about the talent on the floor for Auburn this year? Yeah, the guys have really started to gel, and they've got some really good uh, talent. Um, the backcourt, especially, we've got Parker and we've got Harper and Brown. You know, at the guard position, and those guys are deadly. You know, from beyond the three-point line, so they they shoot NBA threes, and it really pulls the defense out. So from from that aspect, from the guard aspect, we're really stacked, and then. Also, we've got some really good big guys inside. One of our guys who had some uh, knee trouble, he actually had um, a broken leg, Macklemore. He is uh, coming back, and he looks like he's doing a lot better. So, okay, that's good. Yeah, so I think Auburn is is really well stacked as far as like each position, and they're really starting to gel and come together. And when you say you take NBA threes, uh, are you saying that you make them? Because we, we take them all the time and they just don't go in. So, yeah. So you're you're saying you guys make far shots because we're not familiar with that concept. It's uh, it's probably going to confuse us on Wednesday. So you're saying you do take shots from far away on purpose and they go in. I just want to clarify. That is correct. Yes. The, Blake, the what is that? What does that even mean? I don't. What is. Yeah. I, I just want to know what she means by depth at every position on the floor. That's something I don't think. We yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm hearing either. a lot of things. I don't you can have, I've, you can have more yeah. than one guy that plays a position. And this is, this is blasphemy. <laughs> no, and that's, that's what we feared, Beth. That's, that's kind of what we've seen from, you know, not really following too closely is that it just appears that y'all just have guards for days, shooters for days. Uh, that was the style that led to so much success for y'all last year. And it, it appears to still be working. So we're definitely going to have our hands full. I want to talk briefly about the results up to this point because I remember, uh, and I don't know, Blake, if you happened to catch the Auburn-Duke game. What I loved about that Auburn-Duke game, even though uh, Duke won 78-72, there was no fear on the floor. Auburn played like they belonged in that game. They played like, we, you know, we are a top-tier program now. This is the sort of game we belong in. And even though they fell short, this is back when Duke was invincible. And I know they since lost to Gonzaga, but this is back when everybody was talking about, will they be 31-32-0? And Auburn showed up in a nationally televised night game over the holiday season, pretty much pushed them to the edge. So 
Uh, I'm curious, Beth, what are your thoughts on the overall body of work for Auburn up to this point? As the fan base is the general, the, the Auburn world, are they happy with what they've seen up to this point, or were they maybe expecting a little bit more? No, I think everybody's happy. Um, you know, after coming off of last year and the success of that team and winning, you know, tying for the SEC uh, championship, um, the the team was expected to do really well. And I think everybody's really excited about how they've been doing. And, you know, it, especially that Duke game, they did act like they belong there. And I think they do belong there. And they they're definitely playing at the top of their game and, and um, including a lot of people. Uh, there's a lot of people on the bench that are coming in and they've got a really well-rounded team. So I definitely think that they deserve to be there. I agree. I, I agree across the board. And Blake, I'll tee you up for your next question here because the, the only thing you could maybe pick apart when you look at Auburn's results up to this point is that it hasn't really been there for them away from home quite as much. Uh, it seems like, Home games are basically quite literally almost a guaranteed double-digit win with only a couple of exceptions. Away from home, it looks like they've picked up two losses in true road games. And then, of course, the, the previously mentioned game against Duke. What do you think the difference is, Beth? Is it just something about the pace, the kind of freneticism that they played with at home, the crowd bombing threes all the time? Is it, is it just something that doesn't carry over away from the comforts of home? Or what do you see whenever the, whenever they leave whenever they leave the home gym? Well, the SEC is really tough. So, I mean, anytime that they're on the road, um, I mean, regular season, but also in SEC play, um, it's going to be tough. So it's, you know, it's not just football for the SEC. I mean, the men's basketball and the women's basketball, too. Um, it's premier. It's, you know, a top conference. So, you know, in each place is different. I watched the A&M Alabama game um, just recently, and, a&M looked really good. A&M ended up winning by, you know, Starks hitting that bank shot three-pointer at the very end. And it just proves that anything can happen in the SEC. So definitely, you know, Alabama is a team that you wouldn't expect to lose to A&M. No offense. But no, they, none taken. We know we know what we are. <laughs> but anything can happen on the road. And I think Auburn is seeing that. And, and, you know, being at home, there's definitely the home court advantage when you're there in Auburn. Um, you've got Bruce Pearl, who's just, you know, looks like he's about to have a coronary every time he <laughs> there's a time <laughs> called. And then you've got, um, you know, just all the different places that you go in the SEC and, Every gym, every coliseum, every arena is different. So you just have a different atmosphere. So if there were a weakness in Auburn's game, David alluded to a couple losses against ACC teams against Duke and NC State. And then most recently, uh, a loss last week, surprisingly, at Oxford against Ole Miss. So what, what would be the weakness that you would see in this Auburn team? Well, I think that, you know, the you live and die by the three living living by the three pointer and then if you're not hitting then that really reduces the amount of uh, plays that you can run whether it be a two man game going outside inside or you spread the court and you drive in if you take away that threat of the three point then it really limits and you don't really have that dual threat of inside and outside but i think that auburn with the guard play that they have and the big men that they have, as long as they're hitting some threes, they'll be able to spread the court 
and really find some holes to attack the basket. And then another thing too, is that they really look inside and they play really well in the post. And I think a lot of schools don't really utilize their big men as much. And I think that's something Auburn does really well. I agree. And I think if anything, if they need to continue to to leverage that even further, it just looks like uh, they actually attempted 39 threes in the loss at Mississippi and only 28 shots inside the three-point arc. I don't think that's the balance you guys want, right? I, I think uh, anytime you're 60% of your attempted field goals are threes, you're probably not in a good space. So my, my guess, Blake, is that we will help them out in this area. We will allow for some some openings both inside and outside the arc to where they can they can pick their poison. Um Anyway, I'm I'm curious now in kind of the overall your overall opinion because we've got AM kind of playing well. Uh, we played much better than expected at Rupp Arena. We had that game within three points down to a few minutes remaining. Like you mentioned earlier, Beth, we we pulled it off with the bank shot from heaven at Alabama. So we've got <laughs> we've got a little bit of momentum now. We're coming back home. What do you see happening on Wednesday night? Well, you know, it's it's so funny because I follow the Aggies just as much as I follow Auburn and I love the Aggies and I really feel like there's some keys to winning on uh, Wednesday and what would, what the Aggies, I think what the Aggies need to do is really get Auburn um, spread out so that they can attack the basket. And I see, you know, if TJ Starks can attack the basket and have some people like spotting up, ready to shoot, you know, uh, right off of the drive, then I think that they're going, they could most likely win the game against Auburn. But um, I think, I think offensively, A&M has all the tools and they're starting to play better, but um, Auburn also has the tools too so we'll just <laughs> yes you do but you, you you have better tools we have like you have like a like a brand new craftsman tool like straight from sears and we're like we have like a 30 year old butcher knife and we're trying to chop down a tree with it like yeah we also have tools they're just they're not as good <laughs> so no, i know i i agree with that and and blake and i talked about this a couple weeks ago beth we have we have our our best games align with the times where we don't really try to shoot threes. And there's a reason for that because we're just not good. We're in the bottom like 50 of D1 basketball shooting threes. So mm-hmm. I think if we can commit to attacking the rim, I think we can make things happen. Um, I don't know, Blake. Personally, I still think Auburn takes it. I think their defense, man, their advanced defensive metrics are really good. And I don't I don't think we're going to be able to consistently get good looks. Um, I would I would bet AM to cover. I bet it's closer than people think, but I bet Auburn takes it. What do you think, Blake? I agree. I I think that coming down the stretch, Auburn's just going to have too much firepower for A&M. I I don't see us having the the defensive ability to stop you guys from hitting hitting those shots from the outside. And I think you're going to exploit that to to our disadvantage. And then I I am worried that that might open some things up on the inside as well. So uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. But I do think A&M has the, the capability to keep it close. So that's, th- that is the one comforting thing in, in the fact that, they, that the Aggies are playing at home. You're hoping that Mayhan will, will catch fire again. You're hoping that, that Mitchell will be in a rhythm and those guys will be, show up to play and maybe be able to hit some jumpers from the outside and, and at least keep it respectable. 
All right, Beth, uh, thank you again for joining us. Anything you'd like to plug before we uh, take our leave? Well, thanks again for having me. Yes, I'd love to plug that. Um, even though I'm an Auburn Tiger, I am an adopted Aggie. And I come to all the home football games and all the baseball games and we tailgate, but I'm also doing some work up there in college station at the George hotel. My handbag line, Elizabeth Perpich is available at the George hotel and has been, uh, since the fall. And I would love for the Aggies and Aggie land and anybody listening that's traveling to college station to come by and check out the handbags um, they're luxury leather handbags that are all hand cut and stitched and, um, you know, quality made and they're really fun and maroon colors and gunmetal and black and everything that should be Aggie. So, um, you can also find them online at elizabethperpich.com and love for everybody listening to come and experience what, you know, the, my Aggie take on luxury handbags. That we can definitely facilitate that. We'll we'll be happy to include that link in the post that goes out later this week. And you know, there's a there's a longstanding tradition of of people willing to to shell out money for well done products with a hint of maroon in them. And it sounds like you're right up that alley. So we'll make sure uh, we send people your direction. And, and again, uh, thank you for joining us. We do appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks once again to Beth Younger-Perpich for joining us and lending her insight into the upcoming game against Auburn. Blake, it sounds like neither you or I are terribly optimistic about this one, but you know what? I wasn't that optimistic this weekend either, so I don't know, man. Maybe we can pull another one off. Let's hope for the best, man. Let's let's see if we can get an upset at home and uh, take, it, take some momentum into the game against Missouri. All right. Hopefully I've got some good news for you next week. Talk to you soon, buddy. Take care.